0: Um, it was announced this morning that I'd be in Ephesians, and normally I would be in Ephesians. But since we're getting into that part of chapter 3 where Paul has this phenomenal prayer, I wanted to back up in Scripture a bit to the prayer that Jesus taught his disciples before I get into Paul's prayer to the Ephes- or for the Ephesians. So let's see how Jesus taught us to pray. We're going to be in Matthew 6. Um, I like the Matthew version, um, over the Luke version a little bit. Um, Nothing in particular, it's just a personal preference. It's not a a huge theological decision. Um, So if you turn to Matthew 6, we'll be starting in verse 5 and reading down through 15. And when you pray, do not keep on babbling like the pagans, for they think they will be heard because of their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask him. This, then, is how you should pray. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread. Forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. Now, the NIV stops the prayer there because there's very little textual support for the the longer ending. But I will read it to you because it is in the footnote and I love it. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. For if you forgive men when they sin against you, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive men their sins, your Father will not forgive your sins. That's a tough ending. Very tough ending. Because I know there's probably not one person in here that doesn't want their sins forgiven. And Jesus is so kind to give us that warning. You know, if you are the kind that likes to hold grudges against people or you like to withhold forgiveness, don't do it. You're only hurting yourself. So anyway, we'll, we'll get to that point towards the end, but we'll, we'll start towards the, the beginning. Prayer should be one of the most central things to the Christian's life. We are called to a life of prayer. Prayer as a form of worship to God. Prayer is a form of, of belief and, and trust in God. Prayer is a form to pray for the needs and desires and, and things that other people need, keeping our brothers and sisters in prayer. Um, everyone needs prayer. I don't know a single person here that probably doesn't have something on their heart right now that they've been seeking the Lord about or desiring to see happen in their life that doesn't need prayer. We all need prayer. I need prayer every day. Um, I've been blessed twice today to have an opportunity to sit and pray with Oliver this morning before service and again this evening before service because we need it. We're both needy men, and we recognize that in our own lives, and, and we need prayer. And there's always things on our hearts and on our minds that that need prayer. This world needs prayer. You see what's happening in this world. It's just falling apart as fast as it can. And we're privileged to be alive during this time to watch it, I believe. But we need to be lifting up our world in prayer. The nation of Israel, our own country, we all need prayer. And if you struggle finding things to pray about, just call somebody up. I'm sure there isn't anybody here that couldn't share a list with you and, and share what's on their hearts and what's, what's their desire to see God do in answer to prayer. You know, and we have all of God's promises to hear our prayers. I, I love the Psalms where, where David is so confident in God that God is going to answer every prayer that he he speaks to God. You know, he has that deep trust and faith in God, and that's what we need as the body of Christ is that kind of deep faith and trust in God so that when we pray, we know God is going to hear that prayer and answer us. You know, he, he bends down to listen. But he also dwells right in our hearts so that we can share the deepest of emotions, the deepest of needs, the deepest of desires with our Father, and he's he's there for us. I couldn't think of, you know, you think of all the other, air quote, little gods, little G-gods out in the world, they can't do anything compared to our God because they're, Useless. Most are just made up or, or things that we choose to worship or put trust in. You know, one of the stupidest things I can think of is sometimes through demonstration, I trust the electric company more than I do God. Because when I flick on a switch at home, I don't wonder if the light's going to come on. I trust that when I flick that switch, the light comes on. And that's the kind of trust and faith we need in God when we go to him in prayer. Um, You know, it's a stupid little example, but it, it shames me sometimes to put such frail, you know, trust in God at times and put such great trust in the electric company who I know fails me way more than God. I I live down in the woods and it's on a side road and we're like some of the last people in Trenton to ever see power come on, you know, it's, and it's crazy. I moved in with my parents to take care of my parents. The first Christmas we were there, we were out of power for four days. We had Christmas in the dark. I was like, Really? <laughs> really? But why do we put so much faith in something like a power company? And we struggle to put faith in a real, faithful God. Anyway, he starts out um, in verse 8, don't be like them. And if you look back over the, the first seven verses, or five through seven, you see what kind of people Jesus doesn't want us to be like when we go to pray. Um, he hates pretentious prayer. And we're not to pray like the hypocrites or the pagans. And it says in verse 5: when you pray, do not be like the hypocrites, for they love to pray standing in the synagogues and on street corners and to be seen by men. What does Jesus tell us about when we pray? Go into your closet and shut the door and pray in secret don't Don't make a show of your prayer. Don't be pretentious about it don't Don't stand where other people can see you and and try to recognize you as as Mr. Holy or Mrs. Holy or whatever you know we don't make ourselves any more attractive to God by being pretentious like that um, if you turn to Luke eighteen nine through fourteen. We're given a good example of what Jesus is talking about here. And I love this example. (laughs) It's very humbling. To some who are confident of their own righteousness and look down on everybody else, Jesus told this parable. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee, and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood up and prayed about himself. God, I thank you that I am not like other men, robbers, evildoers, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week and give a tenth of all I get. But the tax collector stood up at a distance and would not even look up to heaven, but beat his breast and said, God, Have mercy on me, a sinner. I tell you that this man, rather than the other, went home justified before God. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. God doesn't want us to pray like that. We're to be praying in humility. You know, part of of prayer is recognizing First of all, who we're praying to, we're praying to an almighty, all-knowing God. There's nothing you can hide before God. There's nothing you can try to convince God of. You know, you can try, but good luck with that. He already knows everything. We can't lie to him. There's no way, even some people will actually lie in their prayers thinking that, God doesn't know, and it's like what do you do that for? Why don't you just surrender and admit that we're we're just to be humble servants before God? We're not to be proud and boastful and arrogant in our prayers. we're not to puff ourselves up in our prayers or or be egotistical in our prayers like this this Pharisee was. you know he stood up and he prayed about himself in pride. The tax collector humbled himself before God and and beat on his chest, and he couldn't even look up towards heaven because he knew that he was a sinner. And he knew that his position between he and God had been damaged by his sin and that he needed repentance, and that's what he came to God for. And Jesus tells us he was the one that went away justified. You know, if we want to go to God in prayer and repentance and and with our needs, if we want to receive what we're asking for, we can't be proud and boastful in any way with God. God knows who I am. I can't fool him. I am nothing. Nothing. I tell people the only good thing in me is the Spirit of God. Because if it were up to this flesh, I'd be out there sinning. In fact, I don't even know if I'd be alive today. I'm sure I would have died from an overdose of something, whether it was alcohol or, or you know, tobacco-related deaths or anything like that. You know, it's all a possibility because I came from a long line of alcoholics. You know, but God kept me from becoming an alcoholic. And that's all the reason in the world to be humble before God. God, you saved me. Saved my life from the the depths of impoverished immorality. You know, that would easily have been another route. When you come from a long line of addicts, my dad was one of 13. Nine of them were boys, four of them were girls. And every one of them, except for my dad and one uncle, died from alcohol-related deaths, whether it was cirrhosis of the liver or they died in car accidents because of being drunk. That was what I faced. Thankfully, my dad became a believer. Um, that's a long story. I, well, I'll share it real quick. My dad wasn't a believer when he met my mom. My mom, he asked my mom out. They were roller skating, and my mom said, I can't go out with you because you're not a Christian. And so the next week, he came up to her and asked her out. And uh, my mom said, no. Nope. And then she Twisted a little bit. She says if you want to date me you have to come to church with me. That was their first date and when he went to church that Sunday morning, he got saved and was delivered from alcoholism and tobacco abuse right then you know Fortunately for me my dad got saved, you know, and I didn't have that heritage in his in him because he tried to live as best he could as a godly man in front of the family. He wasn't perfect. No, none of us are. But anyway, the second part here is that we don't want to be like, is that we babble and use many words, or or the Bible calls it vain repetition. Um, We can do this in prayer, or we can do it in our song service. Sometimes I've been in churches where they would sing the same song, for a half an hour. And it's like. Let me out of here. God isn't honored. By vain repetition. He doesn't want us. To come with. A, my science teacher. In high school. Used to say this. Called it diarrhea of the mouth. Sorry for that, that example. But that's not what God is looking for. He's looking for a humbled person who comes into his presence, whether few words or many, as long as they're meaningful and they come from the heart, and we're not just babbling and carrying on for the sake of trying to make a lengthy prayer. Um, I've got written here, meaningless repetition of lengthy, lengthy prayers with the idea that they are more effective is such a falsehood amongst Christians. Whether you pray 10 minutes or an hour, depending on how meaningful you are when you come before God, that's what he counts. This, this Pharisee in the story came with a much longer prayer than the tax collector. The tax collector, I think, only had like five or six words. But he was the one that went away justified. You don't need lengthy prayers Eventually, once you get practiced in prayer, your prayers become longer, and sometimes your list becomes longer. But God already knows what we need before we even come to him. He just wants us to spend time in his presence. And a lot of prayer is not talking. It's sitting in silence, waiting for him to speak. Because sometimes we come to God and we just, and I'm sorry. <laughs> but you know what? After all of that, we say amen and we're gone. Have you ever had a conversation with someone like that? <laughs> you know, it's not very effective, is it? When one person does all the talking and then they just walk away, you tend to not want to have a relationship with those people. You tend to try to avoid them a little bit. But God wants us to be able to come before him and just sit in his presence and enjoy his presence and and let him speak to us, whether it's through your open Bible or if God speaks something to your heart. And even... In very rare occasions, I believe he speaks out loud. He did to people in the Bible, you know. And I'm not going to get in the big debate of whether he does today or not. I believe he does the same thing today that he's always done. You know, there's no reason for us to believe anything he ever did is stopped because we're a different culture, different generation, or, or we live in a different age. God's the same, always the same. So, give time for God to talk, to answer. There's a really good example of this in 1 Kings 18. And this is one of my favorite passages in the Bible. I have too many favorites, I'm sorry. 1 Kings 18:25 through 29. And this is when Elijah was on the top of Mount Carmel and all the prophets of Baal were up there. And uh, when he's talking to them, he, you know, he gives them the first shot at, you know, calling out to their God to answer, for their God to answer by fire. You know, he was a gentleman. You you guys go first. And the whole time, he's mocking them, making fun of them. Uh, maybe your God is in the restroom he's taking a break. Or, or maybe your God is on a trip and he can't hear you. Or, you know, he's just mocking them because he knew their God wasn't real and that God was never going to answer because he wasn't real. But I'll read this passage if I can find it here. Um Elijah said to the prophets of Baal, choose one of the bulls and prepare it first. Since there are so many of you, call on the name of your God, but do not light the fire. So they took the bull, given them, and prepared it. Then they called on the name of Baal from morning until noon. O Baal, answer us, they shouted. But there was no response. No one answered, and they danced around the altar they had made. At noon, Elijah began to taunt them. Shout louder, he said. Surely he is a god. Perhaps he is deep in thought or busy or traveling. Maybe he is sleeping and must be awakened. So they shouted louder and slashed themselves with swords and spears, as was their custom, until their blood flowed. Midday passed, and they continued their frantic prophesying until the time for the evening sacrifice. But there was no response. No one answered. No one paid attention. That's a perfect example of what Jesus is talking about here with the pagans just babble on with vain repetition. And, and, you know, can you imagine trying to do those things to appease your God? The, the frantic dancing and prophesying and slashing your bodies with swords? Thankfully, our God is nothing like that. Our God is so loving and gracious and caring. He's not going to make you dance frantically or, or try to prophesy, you know, demonically or, or or slash yourself with a sword before he'll answer you. He's so loving and compassionate. He wants to hear your prayers. He wants you to come to him with your hurts and your pains and your desires and, and everything that's in your heart. Just pour out before God. He already knows, but he wants you to come anyway because he loves you. He is so passionate for his people. He is so ready and willing to hear your prayers and answer them. That gets to the point of how should we pray? Mark 11:20 20 through 22 to 25 Mark is such a short book. I often skip right through it and go right to Luke. Mark 11:22 to 25. Have faith in God, Jesus answered. I tell you the truth, if anyone says to this mountain, go throw yourself into the sea, and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that what he says will happen, it will be done for him. Therefore, I tell you, whatever you ask for in prayer, believe that you have received it and it will be yours. And when you stand praying, if you hold anything against anyone, forgive him so that your father in heaven may forgive you your sins. You know, I've. Think of my past and how often you know, I would try to come to God in prayer but still hold unforgiveness or a grudge against someone. You know, Jesus told him, hey, forgive first. Forgive first. If we don't forgive first, we're not going to be forgiven. That's how we're to pray. Pray in faith. Pray in faith believing that God hears us. And it's going to answer us. That's what it prayer is about. It's an exercise in faith. You know, God wants to hear our prayers. He wants to listen. And knowing that he already knows everything that we need, we just need to ask in confidence and trust. Now, going back to chapter 6 in the prayer that Jesus taught his disciples to pray, um, often this is used in liturgy. And if you look at the Matthew version in the Greek, there's textual evidence that, um, you can translate it, pray this prayer. And in Luke, um, it's more like pray a prayer like this. So it's it's different in the two two versions. That's why I, I kind of prefer Matthew and i got that from dr b did you take any classes from dr b anyway we, we won't go there right now but anyway um to me, he was my greek hero <laughs> he really was and he's the one i i had the privilege of taking greek from but he's the one i got this from and and you know it's can be looked at as either a a prayer that we repeat and I remember every Sunday morning growing up in the Baptist church, we repeated the Lord's Prayer every Sunday morning. And and some people didn't like it because they thought, oh, it just gets so meaningless when we repeat it all the time. Well, we were told to pray this prayer. You know, I have a liturgical um, devotional, thanks to Oliver, um, and it ends every Prayer session with the Lord's Prayer. I, I believe it's important for us to pray the Lord's Prayer. I believe it should be an integral part of our daily prayer life, whether we repeat it congregationally or not. That's a different story. But um, any prayer should never become meaningless unless we're praying meaningless prayers. Um, you know, and that's up to God to decide. You know whether our prayers are be are just babbling meaninglessness. But I like the idea that it can be used either, you know, pray this prayer, and it's in the plural. The whole prayer is in the plural, and it's meant to be prayed together as a body. And you can't pray this prayer without considering the body in your heart and mind. Even when you're praying it at home alone, there's so many plurals in there. You can't help but think about the rest of the body when you're praying this prayer. And I think that's why Jesus gave us this prayer, because we're to be body-minded. The body of Christ is, is so important. And this is such a beautiful prayer. The first half focuses on God's honor, God's kingdom, and God's purpose or will. The second half focuses on our needs and our dependence on God, and the The later, longer ending, which we'll discuss later, refocuses on God. It's sort of a doxology. And uh, one comment. This prayer I've heard prayed at so many funerals by pagans. Please, 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 if you do funerals, don't pray this at a pagan funeral. (laughs) It's not meant to be prayed by pagans. It's meant to be prayed by believers. Because it starts with our father. You can't call him father if you don't believe he's father. You know, there's men in this church that I shouldn't call father because they're not father. Corey, you're not my dad. I can't call you father. It'd just be stupid. So why would we call him? father if he isn't and Jesus is teaching this to his disciples to pray you know those who believe in him not not the crowds that were chasing after Jesus for the free bread you know there's always going to be those free bread you know good thing I guess look tonight we're going to go through the prayer line by line and I've I see eight pattern items in this, if you like, to divide it up into areas that you can, you know, go through in your prayer. Um, and, you know, if you see those, great. If you don't, that's great, too. You know, some people see a very Trinitarian prayer here. I see partially and the end. I love that part. But anyway, the first is worship. And worship starts out with our Father in heaven. And we have the privilege of calling God Father. You know, Jesus gave that privilege to us when he died on the cross. We, we share his Father. And when he taught his disciples his prayer, he taught them to say, Our Father, not my Father. He was Jesus' Father. And he's our father, but I don't believe we pray this in the the singular. I believe we always have to, to pray it in the plural as it's written. Biblical worship is recognizing who God is and who we are in relation to him. There's a vast difference between God and myself or anyone in this room. He is creator God, father God. loving heavenly father all of those things and i'm so far removed from what god is because he's perfect in all of his ways all of his judgments are just and right there is nothing wrong with god there's no flaw in god there's nothing we could look at in god and say that's a flaw that's a character flaw because there are no character flaws in god He is absolutely perfect. And when he says something, we're to obey it. And Jesus gave us that privilege of calling him Father. You know, our God is very personal and very caring, he's not distant or removed from our lives. He wants to be an integrated part of our lives. Every moment of every day, he desires fellowship with us. And sometimes you'll feel that so strong. You'll be doing something and you'll feel in your heart God calling you to have fellowship with him. And you think in the busyness of life, oh God, I've got to get this done first. I've got to get this done first. And then just like the lover in the, song of Solomon when she's finally ready to answer the door the lover's gone you know and that's what sometimes when God is is, you feel that tug on your heart come have fellowship with me come have fellowship with me and you put him off say no I gotta finish this first and you find when you go to him sometimes he's already left the door he stopped knocking and it makes it so much harder because then you have to go out and find him sometimes and you lose that intimacy that deep sense of his presence sometimes and that's something we don't want to do so we need to recognize who he is and and what he does for us There is only one body of Christ, and when we pray this prayer, we have to recognize the body of Christ. And and that lies across all denominational lines, cultures, nations, continents, people, um, the persecuted, the impoverished. There is only one body of Christ, and we're part of it. We're privileged to be a part of that body of Christ. And when we pray this prayer, we have to pray it in recognition of who God is and who his body is, and to pray for the needs of the body of Christ at the same time we're praying this prayer. He starts this prayer with our Father. Father here in this prayer is the Aramaic Abba. And I want to correct something here with Abba. doesn't mean Daddy, um, like you've heard many, many times. You can translate it as dad, but that's still a little loose. It's still a very respectful term. Um, It's a term of endearment, but carries the respect that that culture would have had for elders that we've sort of lost in our culture. We don't have that sense of respect. Um, You know, so too often you hear these these popular marshmallow fluff pastors think, oh, it means daddy, daddy. Oh, please. <laughs> Take your daddy, daddy somewhere else. You know, we're to come before God with the ultimate of honor and respect for who he is. He's father, he's not daddy. He behaves like a daddy sometimes, though. He certainly does, because there's many times when we're just down and out and we just need him to pick us up and hold us in his arms, and that's when he's like daddy. But when we address him, it's, it's father, our father. Respectful and reverent. It's so important to get the idea of reverence in there, too. And back in this culture, this would have been used strictly in the home and in family circles, and it was definitely a term of endearment. And he goes, our Father in heaven. You know, I I think of the psalmist who wrote, even the highest heavens cannot contain you. You know, when he's contemplating building a a magnificent temple for the Lord, he knew you, you can't contain God in a building. God is so vast, the universe can't contain him. He's spirit and he's life. And he can't be contained in a a little area because he's everywhere present all the time. There's so many people in this world that call him father that have needs that he has to tend to all the time. And we're part of that body. And he's there as our father to meet those and to hear our prayers. He is spirit and present everywhere. The second point here is reverence. Hallowed be your name. And, and we've got to think about this. It's not that we're praying for God to become holy. Um, I used to think when I was praying that as a kid in the Baptist church, we had to pray for God's name to become holy. It, it's not what that means. It's it's recognizing that God is holy and that he's righteous and pure, and that we can come to a holy God unashamed to enter into his presence with a boldness that he's given us through the blood of Jesus Christ. In humility, though. Can you that's a hard picture to paint because On the one hand, we're to come in boldness, but we're also to come in humility. And we usually don't think of those two character traits as being meshed in the same person, but they have to be in the believer's life. You know, we come boldly because we can trust our God to hear our prayers and answer. We're just simply recognizing that he is holy and set apart for his work. His name, Yahweh, which I actually have on my license plate, I, I kind of question sometimes whether that's a misuse of his name. I, I certainly hope it isn't because I want him to be glorified. But um, that was the name he first introduced himself to Moses by. Moses says when God was going to send him to the Israelites in Egypt, um, Moses was, you know, had all kinds of reason not to. And Moses finally asked him, "Well, who do I tell him sent me?" And that's when God gave Moses his name, Yahweh. I am, or I am that I am, or I am what I will be. Um, it speaks of His eternality, um, you know, and and just the the awesomeness of who God has always been even before time began. And most of the time, that the Jews didn't speak the name of God. They considered it so holy, they would say um, the Lord or something like that instead. You know, that's my English translation of what they said. <laughs> What's that? Adonai, yeah. And, uh, you know, so, you know, they didn't want to, to blaspheme or or dishonor the name of God because it was so holy by speaking it in in common circumstances. But I, I believe there's a reason God gave Moses his personal name. It's not so that we could put it on a shelf, but that we could know God and know him by his name because he knows me by my name. He knows each of us by your name. Your own personal name, and and we're all going to get a new name that's given to us by Him someday in glory, you know, and we'll see Him as He is. That's His promise. First Peter 1, 15 through seventeen. And this is more in reference to our holiness instead of God's holiness, but we're compared to him in that sense. But just as he who called you is holy, so be holy in all you do. For it is written, be holy because I am holy. Since you call on a father who judges each man's work impartially, live your lives as strangers here in reverent fear. You know, that's how we're to live our lives, but it's also how we're to approach God in prayer. And reverent fear, you know, reverent fear with boldness and humility. We're just kind of adding up things here, you know, characteristics that God's looking for in a, an honest, true soul that loves God with all their heart. The third point here is expressed desire for his kingdom. Jesus tells us to pray, your kingdom come. Matthew 3, 2, just a couple pages back, if that many pages at all. It depends on how big your print is. This is John the Baptist. It's it's interesting because he's out there in the wilderness teaching and making the way for Jesus and preparing the way for Jesus And in John's words here and saying, repent for the kingdom of heaven is near. John the Baptist was telling the people the kingdom of heaven is near. It's in Jesus Christ. And he's coming after me. He didn't say it was in Jesus Christ because he didn't know it was in Jesus Christ at the time, I don't think. But he was out there telling the people to prepare for the coming of the kingdom. And and we see um, that. Already, not yet tension that's often in prophecy in Scripture um, we know that the kingdom was introduced in Jesus Christ and in there's several passages we can go to that show that you know since Jesus is here the kingdom is here but we know there's a coming of the kingdom in the end where all things will be fulfilled And Jesus rules and reigns completely and entirely by himself over his own kingdom. And we're privileged to be a part of that kingdom. And we're to pray for the coming of that kingdom. The coming of the kingdom as far as Jesus being in our own hearts, but the coming of that futuristic kingdom of his where he's going to rule and reign for all eternity. You know, that's the desire of every Christian's heart. And I know some Christians, oh, I I just hope Jesus doesn't come now because I want to see my kids grow up. Or, or oh, I hope Jesus doesn't come now because I want to see my grandkids grow up. And, and they always have this little tug of the world that seems more important than the coming of the kingdom. But we're to be kingdom-minded people. And to be focused on the coming kingdom of God and the kingdom of God that's already here dwelling in our hearts and and you know it's it's going to be a glorious thing that nothing on this earth could compare, and there should be nothing in this earth that should hold us back from desiring that that coming of the kingdom when it comes in fullness when when Christ returns to rule and reign, one of the passages luke um, eleven fourteen through twenty talks about the kingdom being here. And this was when Jesus was um, driving out demons and the, the brilliant Pharisees and religious rulers, you know, tried to condemn Jesus. So Jesus was driving out a demon that was mute. When the demon left, the man who had been mute spoke and the crowd was amazed. But some of them said, By Beelzebub, the prince of demons, he is driving out demons. Others tested him by asking for a sign from heaven. Jesus knew their thoughts and said to them, Any kingdom divided against itself will be ruined, and a house divided itself will fall. If Satan is divided against himself, how can his kingdom stand? I say this because you claim I drive out demons by Beelzebub. Now, if I drive out demons by Beelzebub, by whom do your followers drive them out? So then they will be your judges. If I drive out demons by the finger of God, then the kingdom of God has come to you. You know, Jesus was announcing that in his presence and because of the acts he was doing, the kingdom of God had come to the people. You know, the kingdom of God is now. We're living in the kingdom. We're seated in heavenly places with the Father now in the spiritual realms. Can you, can you grasp that? To me, that's one of the most amazing things, you know. But there's going to be a coming of his kingdom that's even greater than his presence amongst us now. His presence in our hearts, in our lives, and in our minds. There's going to be a greater, greater thing outpouring of everything that you can imagine in those days that are to come when we're in physically transported into his kingdom in heaven i can't wait i'm looking so forward to that so when i come to this part of the prayer it's like oh lord god only only today only today I just long for that, not, not as an escapist to get out of this world. I mean, this world is going downhill fast, but to just be in his presence completely forever without ever having any other temptation hit me in my life and to be able to live pure and holy as he is pure and holy without anything coming between us. Every time I sin. Something comes between my God and myself. And I've got to be quick to repent because I don't like that. I want him to be in my life all the time. I want his presence to surround me all the time. And, and I can't get enough of him sometimes. And sometimes I get busy and I forget him. And I get to the end of the day and I go, oh God, what did I do? I wasted today. I didn't spend enough time with you. And that's why we need prayer. When we pray that prayer, we're praying for the extension of the kingdom and its consummation. You know, your kingdom come. We want a, the kingdom of Christ to come in all of those around us. We want to see them saved from their sinful lives, set free from addictions and, and sin and, you know, pride and, and arrogance. All those things Jesus can set them free for. So we're praying for the extension of the kingdom that way, but we're also praying for its final consummation when Christ returns. And, and if we're praying this, we must submit to his sovereignty, sovereignty and agree to be ruled by him. You know, we can't pray for your kingdom to come if we're not willing to submit to his sovereignty and and his rule. Why would we do such a thing? It would be foolish because we know when his kingdom comes, he will rule and reign sovereignly over every heart and every mind. And if we haven't surrendered completely to him, then we'll be left out. And I don't want to see that for anybody, especially sitting in this room. The next part of the prayer, the fourth part, is for God's will to be accomplished. It says, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And this is ultimately asking for the consummation of the kingdom because we know God's will will not be perfectly accomplished on this earth until all other kingdoms are, are thrown down and his kingdom is the only kingdom left. When he comes to rule and reign on this earth for during the millennium for a thousand years, and then for all eternity after that. And we need to be thinking of God's will being accomplished in us and through us, and us being a part of God's will. And this includes both moral obedience and bringing about certain events like the cross. You know, when we pray for God's will to be done, sometimes it's not going to be a pleasant thing happening in our lives. When Jesus prayed, not my will, but your will be done, he ended up getting nailed to a cross. We have to surrender our will to his will all the time. We cannot have a a will separate from his if we're praying for his kingdom to come and his will to be done on earth as it is in heaven because that includes his will in our lives and for our lives. And he has a will for each of us. You know, And that will is, is clearly written in his word. I mean, there's so many things in his word that tell us this is God's will. Um, Paul wrote, rejoice always. And I'll say it again, rejoice, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus concerning you. If, if you want to know where to start, wondering what God's will is, start there. Rejoice always. And when you fully accomplish that, then go on to the next passage of Scripture that says, This is what God's will is. But we know his will is through his righteous commandments throughout Scripture. You know, and that's what he wants us to follow and to live up to. And we need his help to do that. We can't do that on our own. In my own strength, all I can do is fail. I can't have any spiritual success in my life if I'm trying on my own efforts. It needs to be in submission to God's will and his reign and rule in my own heart first. Because if I'm sharing the gospel with someone and I want to see God rule and reign in their life, he's got to be ruling and reigning here first. And his will has to be accomplished there. Acts 21:12 through 14. Oops, went right by it. And this is when when Paul is on his way to Jerusalem and the people are trying to persuade him, don't go, Paul, don't go, Paul, because you're going to run into trouble. And and Paul's telling them, you know, I've got to go. I've got to go. And then they come to this conclusion. When we heard this, we and the people there pleaded with Paul not to go up to Jerusalem. Then Paul answered, why are you weeping and breaking my heart? I am ready not only to be bound, but also to die in Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. When we would not be dissuaded, we gave up and said, the Lord's will be done. You know, they knew what was going to happen to Paul. There was a prophet that told him what was going to happen to Paul when he went up to Jerusalem. So they were trying to talk him out of it. But Paul was so determined to accomplish God's will for his life and to live out his life for God, you see where it got him. When he got into Jerusalem, he was arrested, put on trial. Then, you know, he appealed to Caesar and had to go on this long journey to Rome and was shipwrecked and everything, bitten by a viper, all those crazy things that happened to Paul. But it was because he was determined to fulfill God's will in his life. You know, if we had that kind of determination in our own life, We could change our world in in no time at all. And it's a lot of time we don't fulfill the will of God in our life because we just become too self-absorbed sometimes. Too introspective and inner focused. You know, we don't need to do that. We shouldn't be doing that. And that part of the prayer includes the the line, as it is in heaven. You know, can you imagine how God's will is fulfilled in heaven? You know, he has angels surrounding his throne. And they're worshiping him and praising him and and telling of his wonders and, and the glories of heaven. It's just like, could you imagine? Everything in heaven goes according to God's will. It's only in humanity that we don't fulfill God's will. It's only in humanity that we find the rebellion, you know, and some of the angels that rebelled, of course, and and then led man in rebellion against God. But you look at the universe, it's all according to God's will. You look at creation. You look at the trees. They reproduce according to themselves like God told them to. From the beginning, animals reproduce according to themselves like God told them to. You know, all of wildlife goes according to the way God told them. It's just man that has the rebellious heart that wants to stand in defiance to God and say, not your will but mine, you know, where Jesus taught us to say, not my will but yours be done. And that's the way we come to God in prayer. We transition to the other half of the prayer. That first half concerned mostly God. It's a prayer that you know God's people will hallow his name, submit to his reign, and do his will, basically. The fifth point here is our personal and physical needs. Jesus tells us to pray to, for God to give us today our daily bread, or give us this day, or give us bread sufficient for the days. Probably the more literal translation. Um, He doesn't tell us to pray for a freezer full. He doesn't pray to tell us to pray for a, a pantry full. He tells us to pray for enough for the day. And again, this is in the plural. Give us this day our daily bread. Give us. You've got to think of the body. We have fellow believers around the world that are impoverished impoverished and starving to death. But yet we pray, give us this day our daily bread, not their daily bread. What happened to their daily bread? Well, God put their daily bread in our wallet. Do you ever think of that? But sometimes we want to keep their daily bread in our wallet. We don't want to give out that, that money to p- help feed the poor and the impoverished. But that's what God tells us to do. True religion is to take care of the needs of the widow and orphan is what James tells us. You know, take care of the needs of the widows and He's taking care of our need. I can look around the room and I can say, honestly, I believe everyone in here is probably pretty well fed. Um, we don't go without too many meals. I know I usually have two to two and a half, sometimes three meals a day. And that's because I'm single and live alone. It's just easier to just do it as two or two and a half. And usually I'm not, you know, starving when I wake up so I can wait till almost lunchtime to eat. And, you know, supper is uh, usually something light and maybe a snack here and there. That's probably what I do more of than anything. But we're well fed physically. And, and Luther looked at this passage and he said it's probably not just um, real bread or just food that he tells us to pray for, but Luther further suggests that we um it includes everything we need in our physical realm, clothing, food, shelter, those basic human needs, you know, and that's what this prayer includes. But I would take it um, a little further here. Um, John 6:32 to 35, in the same chapter we're in, Oops. Nope, not same chapter. Same chapter, but different book. I'm sorry. (laughs) Where's my brain? John 6 is one of the most heartbreaking chapters in the Bible, I think. Um, It's because it's when the crowds turned their back on Jesus and walked away because his sayings were too difficult for them. What's that? Yeah, eat my flesh and drink my blood. When they found him on the other side of the lake, they asked him, Rabbi, when did you get here? Jesus answered, I tell you the truth. You were looking for me, not because you saw miraculous signs, but because you ate the loaves and had your fill. Do not work for food that spoils, but for food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you. On him God the Father has placed his seal of approval. Then they asked him, What must we do to do the work God requires? Jesus answered, The work of God is to do this. Believe in the one whom he sent. So they asked him, What miraculous sign then will you give? that we may see it and believe you. Not that the other ones that he'd done weren't enough. You know, he's going on their forefathers ate the manna in the desert. As it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. And Jesus said to them, I tell you the truth. It was not Moses who has given you the bread from heaven, but it is my father who gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. Sir, they said, from now on, give us this bread. Jesus declared to them, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me will never go hungry, and he who believes in me will never be thirsty. You know, when we pray for our daily bread, I hope we're not just praying for physical provision. I hope we're praying for the true bread that came down from heaven, more of Jesus in our life, because he is the the only bread that matters. He's the true bread of life. I mean, we can get by without physical food for quite some time, but we can't get by without Jesus in our lives. We need Jesus. He is the only source of salvation and freedom from the life of sin. And if you continue in the, the chapter in John six twenty five to thirty three, I forgot I was going there. Nope. Uh, oh, nope. I'm sorry, Matthew six twenty five to thirty three. And this is Jesus still talking during the Sermon on the Mount right after the prayer, or right after teaching on fasting after the prayer. He goes, therefore, I tell you, do not worry about your life, what you will eat or drink or about your body, what you will wear. Is not life more important than food and the body more important than clothes? Look at the birds of the air. They do not sow or reap or store away in barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not much more valuable than they? Who of you, by worrying, can add a single hour to his life? And why do you worry about clothes? See how the lilies of the field grow. They do not labor or spin. Yet I tell you that not even Solomon in all of his splendor was dressed like one of these. If that is how God clothes the grass of the field, which is here today and tomorrow is thrown into the fire, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? So do not worry, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the pagans run after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need him. But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be given to you as well. Therefore, do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will worry about itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. You know, that's why I think he tells us to pray for enough bread for today. We don't need to have an overabundance of food in our house all the time. I think he wants us to, to rely on him and trust and use our resources because we know people are... Starving to death every day. There was a statistic I read about ten years ago in, in um, uh, David Platt's book, um, Radical. Thank you. I got a coach up here. I love it. Um, back when he wrote his book, twenty thousand children a day die from starvation or preventable diseases, but yet we walk around with wallets full, bank accounts full, and we fail to see the need around us, Um, and especially we live in such a global society right now. There's no no reason to not be aware of the needs of our brothers and sisters in Christ around the world, because many of them suffer and starve. And the resources they need may be sitting in your pocket. And we need to be free to share that. Share the blessing that God has given us as Americans. You know, God has blessed this nation financially to the point where we have so many billionaires. And it's insane. Why do we need so many billionaires? Why does anyone need to have that kind of money? Why does anyone need to be millionaires for that matter? I, I will never be a millionaire. I know in my lifetime I will never be a millionaire because every time I get money, I end up giving it away. I can't hold on to money. It just doesn't work. I can't do it. When I sold my house, my first house in Trenton, I had like 40000 left over after I paid off my house and within a year it was gone because I saw needs. And as long as I had money like that and there was needs that I could provide for that God had already provided for me in abundance, I, I sold the house for way more than I thought it would sell for. I was expecting like 135, and it sold for 175. So, you know, what a blessing God dumped into my life. But praise God, it didn't take me long to get rid of it. <laughs> it was like, but that's what we should be as Christians, looking for the need around us, looking for people to feed not only their, their bodies, but their minds and their hearts. Teach people care for people, love people. He also taught us to pray for our spiritual needs. He taught us to pray, forgive us our debts as we have forgiven our debtors. Our greatest spiritual need in this life is forgiveness. No spiritual need ever compares to our need for forgiveness. And when Jesus died on the cross and shed his blood, he made a way for us to be given forgiveness. Free forgiveness through his grace, through belief in him, you know it, to me it's just such an amazing gift, and we're to forgive as freely as God has forgiven us? God doesn't want Christians running around with grudges in their in their hearts and 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 you know withholding love for someone because oh, they did something that hurt my feelings, you know. It was said growing up in the Baptist church, you can't praise the pianist because you'll offend the organist. You know, that's how touchy some churches can be. And and it's sad because we shouldn't, if someone praises the pianist, man, we should be, yay, what a great pianist. And then praise the organist too. You know, our praise and our love and our, the freedom of forgiveness, and we should be have an inability to be offended. You know, taking offense is a sin. It's flat out sinful to take offense. But praise God that we don't have to. Praise God he paid that debt and freely forgave us of our sins. And, and I want to, there's a, a teaching out there I heard years ago in Bar Harbor, and it is so wrong. And it's that that once you become a Christian, you never have to ask for forgiveness again. And I thought, what? What? It's the Lord's Prayer. And Jesus is teaching us daily to ask for forgiveness. Man, if I could go one whole day without sinning and needing forgiveness, I'd be doing the dance around the parking lot rejoicing. I can't make it. I need to ask for forgiveness. And I don't know what they were basing that on, because I find it nowhere in Scripture, but we, were, I was at this retreat in Bar Harbor, and, and it was, you know, great fellowship with some of the people there, but the teacher they had hired to come do the teaching for this retreat, you know, he was all about never asking for forgiveness again. And it's, he claimed that, you know, once you ask Jesus forgiveness, all your sins are forgiven for your life. Well, I always understood that all my sins were forgiven for my past up to that point. But unfortunately, like most people, I didn't stop sinning when I got saved. I wish I could have. I wish I could honor my Lord that way. It would be so awesome, but I didn't. I didn't stop sinning. I need God's forgiveness every day. Asking for forgiveness involves a humility and a dependence on God. You know, when Jesus was being nailed to the cross, what were his pretty much last words? Forgive them for they know not what they do. And you see Stephen, the martyr, being stoned. He said the same thing. Lord, forgive them for they know not what they do. You know, sometimes we just have to forgive blindly while the rocks are still coming at us. You know, we don't have to wait for the rocks to stop to forgive. If Stephen had waited for the rocks to stop, he would have been dead and unable to forgive. Forgive freely. And sometimes while the rocks are still flying, because they will be. Because no one is perfect. Somebody out there is going to hurt you today, they're going to say something. That's going to hurt you. And, and it may cut to the core. But you've got to be quick to forgive. And quick to move on. And quick to love that person. Just like Jesus loved me. Jesus never held one of my sins against me. You know that? All of my wretched sinfulness. Not one of those sins has he ever held against me. Even though he said they're an abomination. Abomination. He still forgave me. And he still loves me and wants to forgive me. The eighth point here, and I'll try to speed it up. We need to recognize our own spiritual weakness. And in this part, he teaches us to pray and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. Um. NIV has evil one. Some of your versions may have evil. Lucky us, it can be translated either way because it can be either neuter or masculine. If you translate it in the masculine, it's evil one. If you translate it in the neuter, it's just plain old evil. Um, So I love passages like that that have the, the dual possibility Because, you know, you don't want to call one translation wrong over another. I don't like to do that. But we're to recognize our own spiritual weakness. And the fact that um, we are spiritually weak beings and we need a God. Go to James real quick. I love this passage. Right after Hebrews James one thirteen to fifteen. A- and this is when you can turn to yourself and say, I'm the stinker. The devil isn't the stinker most of the time. I'm the stinker. Starting in thirteen When tempted, no one should say, God is tempting me. For God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone. But each one is tempted by his own evil desire. He is dragged away and enticed. Then after desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is full grown, gives birth to death. You know, we pray for God not to lead us in evil in in the paths of evil we want him to protect us from those paths of evil and most of the time that path begins in the darkness in my own heart and my own evil desires you know and he also asks us to pray for deliverance from the evil one um jesus used scripture when he was being tempted in the wilderness by the devil he combated every temptation with a passage of scripture The more scripture you know, the stronger you're going to be when it comes to temptation, whether it's coming from inside or outside or from a friend. You know, your friends can tempt you just as much as the devil. And your friends probably tempt you more than the devil. Your friends should tempt you to goodness and righteousness and those good characteristics that we want. But sometimes they don't tempt us in those ways. Sometimes they have evil in their hearts and they act in evil ways. And they don't like it that we don't act in evil ways like them. So they want us to, to come join them. I remember when I worked in carpentry, and this conversation came up because of a Corey and I's discussion with a guy named Seth who left here to go work at Sugarloaf. Um, you know, we're, we're surrounded by people in our work environment, that have foul mouths tell dirty jokes and, and get a kick out of it, especially if they know we're Christians because they want to get a rise out of us or they want to see us laugh at their joke. And when I worked in carpentry and into the boatyard, the, the guys at the boatyard intentionally antagonized me because they knew I was a Christian and they couldn't wait to tell me a dirty joke first thing in the morning. And I would just walk off. I didn't want to hear it because our minds are like a trap sometimes. They they trap the stuff that shouldn't be trapped, and the stuff that should be trapped, which is the word of God, doesn't get trapped as easily as some of those filthy jokes. You know, so they would get me in a corner and try to tell me a joke and I would just push him out of the way and walk away. I didn't want to hear it because I didn't want that joke to be trapped in my mind throughout the day and to be thinking about that. Because enough stuff can come into our minds anyway. And we have to be careful of what we're, we're tempted by. Um, I've got a whole bunch of scriptures here, but we are getting too close to being out of time. But um, I'll get to a couple of them. First Peter 5, 8 through 9. I'll try to hit the best ones. And that's hard to do. Oops. There we go. Be self-controlled and alert. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. Resist him, standing firm in the faith, because you know that your brothers throughout the world are undergoing the same kind of sufferings. You know what? The thing I like is everything that we experience in life is common to man. You know, There's not one of us that goes through a temptation that someone else hasn't gone through already. And, you know, the things we're tempted by and the things that get our attention and that we're drawn to that we shouldn't be, someone else has already gone before you. And they've conquered it through their faith in Christ. And you look at the second verse here, or verse 9, resist him standing firm in the faith. That's how we resist him. By standing firm in the faith. When the devil comes or the tempter, whoever it may be, or whatever it may be, whether it's your own thought or your, your workmate or, or the devil himself, I, I personally don't believe the devil has probably tempted too many people here because he can only be in one place at one time and he can't read minds. I believe he can't. So he can't he's his focus is gonna be on like the ultra important people world rulers, and and those kind of people. And, you know, I'm just not one of those. So the the likelihood that I've ever been tempted by the devil is almost nil. But the likelihood that I've been tempted by my own evil desires is like 99.9% of what I face for temptation. And it's probably 99.9% of what everyone faces for temptation. It's our own evil desires. And James made that so clear, but we need to stand firm in the faith and resist him. Um, (coughs) James 4, 7, you're right in the neighborhood, so we may as well hit it. Submit yourselves then to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Come near to God, and he will come near to you. Wash your hands, you sinners. And purify your hearts, you double-minded. You know, you can keep going on. It talks about grieving and mourning and wailing. But um, the idea is that we can resist the devil. And we can stand firm in our faith if we have a firm faith. If our faith is wobbling and shaky, it's hard to stand firm against the devil and his wiles. You know, he's looking for the easy prey. My friends were looking for the easy prey, you know. So anyway, and the last part that um, isn't included in some Bibles because uh, there's no early textual evidence for it. Um, it did appear first in the Didache or Didache or whatever how you say that. And that was written towards the Far end of the first century into the early part of the second century. But I love this ending anyway. And that's why I usually include it in my prayers because it brings us full circle back to how we started in worship and recognizing who God is and recognizing that for yours is the kingdom. Kingdom isn't mine, kingdom belongs to God. Yours is the power power's not mine sometimes he shares strength with me but the power is his it comes from him and his is all the glory all of the glory you know and even though there's little textual evidence for it to be included it's so theologically profound i love it so i leave it there i pray it every time and i think it's an important part to to come full circle and and identify with god and who he is and that he is the ruler of his kingdom and he has all the power and all the glory let us pray heavenly father we just thank you so much that you loved us so much that you taught us to pray you gave us this pattern or, or this prayer to pray directly as it's written, Lord. Either way, Lord, it's beautiful, Lord. And it includes everything we need for life and and, and sustenance and, and spiritual life and physical life, Lord. And Lord, help us to to be quick, to be mindful that it's in the plural, Lord. It it's, includes the body, not just us when we pray it, Lord. And to be mindful of the needs of the body, for for love, for provision, for forgiveness, Lord, and help us to be free to forgive as you forgave us, and help us to learn from this prayer, Lord, and to apply it to our lives, Lord. and We just give you the glory, Lord. The glory belongs to you. It doesn't belong to us in any way, Lord. It's It's your word, Lord. It's your your teaching, Father God, and we want you to receive the glory for it. In Jesus' name, amen.